Hello, and welcome to the Hypochondriac's Almanac Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah. And before we get started with the show today, we need to do a couple of little disclaimers. We are not doctors, nurses, or medical professionals of any kind on this show, so please don't take what we say on the show as medical advice. If you have any issues, questions, concerns, go see a medical professional. First article, The Last of Us has been huge on HBO. This article kind of covers off a little bit on what is actually the science behind this fungus that the show is based on. But the article is called, Here's What the Cordyceps Fungus is Like in Real Life, According to Scientists. If we're to believe the HBO zombie apocalypse series, The Last of Us, the end of humankind comes via the tentacles of a creepy-looking brain-infecting fungus called cordyceps. As with so many terrifying scenarios, the germ gone wild depicted in the hit show has roots in real life. Cordyceps fungi are real organisms that are most at home in warm, humid climes. They can take over the minds of ants, as well as certain spiders, moths, locusts, and other arthropods, but thankfully not humans. The fungus attacks insects that live in the ground or soil, according to doctors. Ants are one, but there are also grasshoppers, spiders, and locusts. Scientists call the cordyceps fungus the zombie ant fungus. It doesn't spell the end of humankind, but it certainly does spell a grizzly end for the creatures that it does infect. Here's how it works. The ant or other arthropod ambles innocently out of its nest looking for food and blissfully unaware that cordyceps spores are raining down from a nearby tree or stem or branch. The spores latch onto the ant or other creature, releasing digestive enzymes to break down the insect's cuticle, which is the hard outer shell. Thread-like growths known as mycelia start growing inward and eventually take over the insect's brain, which starts producing neurotransmitters that affect brain function. The transformation is complete and the ant begins to stumble and convulse, acting in a way that benefits the cordyceps. The fungus basically hijacks the brain so the ants stop doing what ants do and start doing what fungus wants it to do, which is climb up the tree trunk. Once they've reached the treetops, the ants bite the stem or leaf in what is known as a death grip. That's the last thing they do before the fungus starts growing from the neck or head of the ant up. The ants die within six hours of infection, and then two or three days later, a fungal stalk emerges from the neck. Then the spores start raining down again, and the cycle repeats. That's life, at least for arthropods. Like many organisms on the planet, it does what it needs to do to replicate and continue reproducing. But could this ever happen in humans? The Last of Us is real life for ants, but not for humans, say doctors and scientists. At least not yet, although they would not rule it out way down the line. The fact that we don't have a pathogen that's been able to come up with a strategy to hijack our minds does not mean it's not possible at some point. For now, though, it isn't likely to happen in humans. One of the reasons for that is that humans are warm-blooded. Most fungi and molds do not grow well in high-temperature environments. Humans, which have a body temperature of 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, are most likely inhospitable to these fungi. The creators of the show have taken a very niche moment in nature and fictionalized it. It's a popular, great TV show, but it's not really viable or realistic portrayal of what could happen. 
I don't think we ought to be worried, say infectious disease experts. A fungus is a much higher order, a much more complicated germ than a virus, so it would be a much more complicated phenomena for this fungus to jump species. Real life dangers. This is not to say that humans can't be infected by organisms that typically infect other species. We do have zoonotic infections. Mpox is a good example, and so is COVID-19, which comes from the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Often viruses, sometimes even fungi, can be in another species and jump over to humans, but it usually needs progressive jumping back and forth between humans and animals. Climate change is also introducing new dangers, including new fungi. One of them is a type of yeast called Candida auris. Organisms' adaptation to a warmer temperature is thought to be the reason it now has a better chance of being able to survive in the human body. This is also the reason The Last of Us writers used to explain why cordyceps can infect people. While Candida auris gravitates to your skin, it can cause bloodstream infections and is often spread in hospitals and other healthcare settings. If you're healthy, it will stay on your skin and even go away. But if you have lines and catheters and have had surgeries, it can cause infections and wounds. Those infections can spread not just to the bloodstream, but also different organs like the brain and heart. It's a type of Candida species that has emerged with climate change, and it is possible that other fungi and mold will evolve to survive and reproduce in warmer climates. Candida auris, which also first was recognized about 10 years ago, is already resistant to multiple drugs. It also spreads from person to person, unlike other types of molds and fungi that more often come from the environment. As with most fungi, if you're healthy, Candida auris isn't likely to cause any harm. But if you're immunocompromised or otherwise in frail health, they can cause severe infections that can eventually be life-threatening. Separating fact from fiction. There's another entity hijacking our brains right now, and that is science fiction-esque misinformation masquerading as fact. So as long as you realize The Last of Us and other shows are fiction, there is no harm done. For decades, science fiction writers have basically taken ideas to an extreme, and that is part of the fun. As wonderfully rich and extraordinary as real science is, there are real biological limitations, and this would be one of them. When it comes to real life, listen to public health will tie you to reality. It's not like we need to look for things to worry about. If you ask me whether this fungus or SARS-CoV-2 will be the end of us, 100 times out of 100, I'd say SARS. Next article, valley fever, historically known only in the Southwest, is spreading. It can have devastating consequences. Tanya Bauer and Gotti Schwartz wrote this article. Doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with Devin Buckley. It was February 2018, and the previously healthy 18-year-old found that he couldn't walk to the bathroom without becoming winded. This was in addition to rapid weight loss, stomach problems, and extreme fatigue that seemed to come out of nowhere. The Campus Health Center at the University of Arizona in Tucson, where Buckley was enrolled as a freshman, had no answers either. Neither did anyone at Urgent Care. Buckley was home in Chicago for spring break when he wound up in the intensive care unit struggling to breathe. It was there that he was finally diagnosed with valley fever after a friend suggested doctors test for it. It blew my mind that something so serious could not be known, says Buckley. When I first got diagnosed, the word cancer was going around with some of the doctors, like they were screening me for it. So it just goes to show you how serious of a disease it is if doctors seeing it first think I have cancer. Valley fever is an infection caused by breathing in spores of the fungus Cocodiodes. 
The spores can survive through heat and drought lingering in the soil. When the dirt is disturbed through construction, wind, or even walking, the spores can be lofted into the air. The fungus is endemic to the hot, dry soils of the Southwest. 97% of all cases of valley fever are, are reported in Arizona and California, according to the California Department of Public Health. But that could change. Fungal infections, including valley fever, are increasingly being diagnosed outside of their usual ranges. One study in the Journal of GeoHealth projected that due to climate change, the range of valley fever could spread east through the Great Plains and north to the Canadian border before the end of the century. As the temperatures warm up and the western half of the U.S. stays quite dry, our desert-like soils will kind of expand, and these drier conditions would allow cadiotas to live in new places, say doctors. A tremendous spectrum of disease, around 20,000 cases of valley fever were reported in 2019, but the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say that it is likely an underestimate. While easily diagnosed with a blood test, valley fever has long been misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed due to a lack of knowledge about the disease by both the public and physicians. The majority of people with valley fever may not even know they have it. Its symptoms often look similar to a respiratory virus infection with fatigue, cough, fever, shortness of breath, and muscle aches. If you see a patient with pneumonia that either lives in the Southwest or has traveled to the Southwest, then valley fever needs to be in what we call the differential diagnosis, meaning it's one of the things we have to think about, say, doctors. In 5 to 10% of the cases, the infection can lead to a serious long-term problem in the lungs, according to the CDC. It definitely has a tremendous spectrum. You know it ranges from people who breathe and the spores really have no symptoms but develop immunity. The other end of the spectrum is people with full-minute infections, meningitis, or multi-site dissemination that is outside of the lungs in multiple different sites of the body. Fulminant infection means the illness comes on rapidly and severely in an otherwise healthy person. The vast majority are somewhere in between, but they still have a subacute illness. They're sick for weeks to months with a cough, fatigue, fever, and chills, so it's still a significant disease. Valley fever can be difficult to treat. Some patients need to take an antifungal medication for months or years that can come with uncomfortable side effects like hair loss, chapped lips, and dry skin. In the years after Buckley was diagnosed, the disease spread from his lungs to his spine and legs. He's been placed on a ventilator three times. The last time in 2021 was the longest, and he stayed on the ventilator for two weeks. The ventilator was 100% at one point. It was breathing for me, he said. They were telling my mom, prepare for me not to be here. Buckley has relearned how to walk, feed himself, and accomplish basic daily tasks, but he's still not out of the woods. His life is radically different from what it was like before he got sick, filled with doctor's appointments, surgeries, and hospital stays, but there is hope on the horizon. Scientists have been trying to develop a vaccine for valley fever since the 1960s, according to the CDC. In the 80s, one candidate was eventually tested in humans, but it did not work well. In recent years, researchers at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson have developed a vaccine that's highly effective in dogs. Dogs, like humans, are susceptible as well to valley fever. The two-dose vaccine uses a version of the fungus that's genetically tweaked so it can't cause the disease, but can still train the immune system to recognize and respond to future infections. 
The vaccine could be approved by the U.S. Department of Agriculture for use in dogs by early 2024. If so, it will be the first time the U.S. has approved a vaccine to protect against a fungal infection in animals or humans. Dr. John Galgiani, director of the Valley Fever Center for Excellence at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, worked on the vaccine research in dogs. He's now focused on getting the vaccine into clinical trials for humans. I'm really quite hopeful, he said. In my view right now, we have a candidate that deserves to be evaluated and I think will probably be effective and will be using it. Still, an approved Valley Fever vaccine for humans is years away. If all goes according to plan, which doesn't always happen in the scientific process, Galgiani noted the earliest he sees his vaccine available for humans is in eight years. But experts say now is the time to build on the momentum of the research to move vaccine development forward before valley fever reaches even more people in the country. I think fungi are really the coming superbugs. I think they're the ones that are going to be problematic over the next decade, and valley fever is going to be a key part of that. They really are here to stay. This battle is sort of just beginning. Wow, that's pretty frightening. Next article. A 20-year-old thought she had an insect bite. She was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer and died months later. Amber Middleton wrote this article. A 20-year-old student died from a rare form of cancer after what she believed to be an insect bite on her shoulder turned out to be a tumor. Jenna Patel from Bolton, UK, was studying to be a school teacher when she discovered a lump on her shoulder after gardening with her mom and brother in spring 2021, according to the charity Cancer Research UK. After numerous tests during which time the lump grew quickly, she was diagnosed with a rare form of bone cancer called Ewing sarcoma in spring 2021. Early signs of Ewing sarcoma include a tumor with a dull or aching pain. Ewing sarcoma is most common in children, teenagers, and young adults because these are peak periods of growth. Early signs of Ewing sarcoma include a dull or aching pain around the tumor, different to that that is caused by an injury. There can also be noticeable swelling around the tumor that can be mistaken for other conditions like blood clots, but the tumor might not be noticeable if it is deep-seated, for instance, in the pelvis or spine. This type of cancer is very rare, with only 56 new cases diagnosed each year in the UK. For those who are diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma, the five-year survival rate is about 86% if the cancer hasn't gone beyond the original tumor, according to the American Cancer Society. When Patel was being diagnosed, her dad was receiving treatment for lung cancer. Her mother, Pretty Patel, told Cancer Research UK, when we were told she had cancer, I just felt numb. The news was too much to take in knowing that her dad was only a few miles up the road and also going through cancer treatment. After Patel's diagnosis in spring 2021, she immediately started chemotherapy. Doctors told her it was a success and she would fully recover by March 2022. But the tumor began to grow rapidly once again after she stopped chemotherapy and had a break in treatment. Weeks before Christmas, she had an operation to remove the tumor. The surgery went well, but the tumor was bigger than expected. In early 2022, Patel was having breathing difficulties and scans revealed the cancer had spread to her lungs. By April, chemotherapy was no longer having an effect on the cancer and she was given a terminal diagnosis. She died May 13, 2022, shortly after her 21st birthday. Following her death, her family has been raising money for cancer charities, including more than $7,345 for Cancer Research UK. Her mother said Jenna remained so positive and determined that she inspired us all. 
Her death has left a huge hole in our lives and we miss her very deeply. Speaking of cancer, cancer vaccines are already a reality, but your doctor might not tell you about them unless you ask. Erin Pratcher wrote this article. Cancer vaccines, it's a concept seemingly torn from the plot of a futuristic sci-fi movie or from the pages of some decades-old utopian novel far ahead of its time. But such wonders of science do exist today, and while much work lies ahead, they've been preventing cancer and saving lives for more than four decades. If you took a poll and asked people, do we have a vaccine against cancer, people would say no. But really, they don't know that we do. Giants BioNTech and Moderna recently made headlines for exploring the potential of mRNA vaccines, which were first employed with COVID to treat cancer. Such vaccines use lab-created messengers that teach the body how to mount an immune response. But clinical trials have long been underway using more traditional vaccine technologies, and participants are already receiving cancer vaccines, many personalized. A handful of vaccines have already received approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and cancer-preventing vaccines have been around since the 80s. If this is news to you, you're not alone. Doctors don't always offer cancer-preventing or cancer-treating vaccines to patients due to a lack of knowledge or bias against certain racial, gender, or age groups. Patients need to advocate for themselves, say doctors. We tend to think the doctor is absolutely right, but it's not always the case by any means. What is a cancer vaccine? Cancer vaccines are not much different from vaccines for infectious diseases like the flu, measles, mumps, and COVID. Vaccines stimulate the immune system to fight a target, usually a virus. In this case, however, the target is cancer. Right now, the bulk of cancer vaccines are therapeutic used to treat patients who've already advanced their cancer case, often in concert with other interventions like chemotherapy, surgery, or radiation. Two are currently approved by the FDA according to the Cancer Research Institute, one for early stage bladder cancer and another for prostate cancer. But there are also vaccines for cancer survivors. They're given to those in remission with a high risk of relapse. And one of these is headed up by the Defense Department testing vaccines intended to prevent the reoccurrence of triple negative breast cancer. Then there are the vaccines that can prevent cancer altogether, and there are four that are FDA approved. Three for HPV or human papillomavirus and one for hepatitis B. All work to prevent infections that can lead to cancer down the road. The HPV vaccine is recommended for males and females around age 11 or 12, but it can be given as early as age 9 and as old as age 26. The Hep V vaccine is recommended for anyone age 59 and older and adults 60 and older who are at risk for infection. While approved cancer-preventing vaccines are few in number, they're having an outsized impact. The HPV vaccine drove a 65% decline in cervical cancer for women in their early 20s from 2012 to 2019, according to data by the American Cancer Society. These women would have been among the first to receive the vaccine approved by the FDA in 2006. Similar reductions could eventually be seen in other cancers caused by HPV that usually occur later in life, like head, neck, oral, rectal, and vulvar cancers, according to doctors. It's a major win for science, say researchers, referencing the new data on the vaccine's success. We really can end cervical cancer as we know it for everyone if vaccination happens, and the same should hold true for other HPV-related cancers. Another target many researchers have their eyes on is breast cancer. 
Labs around the world are particularly interested in developing vaccines that could prevent the most common cancer in the world, or at least prevent it from returning in survivors. Labs are working on a vaccine that targets six points of attack frequently found on breast cancer. Fortuitously, many are also found in lung, ovarian, and pancreatic cancers. We may be generating immunity that targets breast cancer specifically, but we think that immunity may also be protective against other cancers as well. At the moment, vaccines that treat active cancer exist in trials with few exceptions. They're not cures. However, receiving one is much more complicated than going to a pharmacy and getting a COVID or flu vaccine. Personalized cancer vaccines are common within clinical trials, but developing them is a lengthy process. Cancer doesn't wait. Doctors say personalized cancer vaccines are bespoke therapies. For each patient, a specialist must determine which tumors can be reached via a biopsy. Then the patient must undergo the biopsy and have their tumor cells genetically sequenced by a company like Illumina. The sequence is analyzed then to determine what vaccine composition is likely to be the most effective in the particular patient. Then the personalized vaccine must be produced and delivered to the patient. Each step can take weeks, if not months, usually about six months in all. Time is something we're struggling with on a daily basis, say the experts. Illumina is providing genetic sequencing capabilities to Moderna for its melanoma prevention vaccine given to those who've been diagnosed and had their tumors removed. Patients who took both the new vaccine and a monoclonal antibody therapy that, that helps immune cells kill cancer cells were 44% less likely to die or have their cancer return when compared with a group that took only the vaccine. The drug is moving on to phase three trial, the last before potential FDA approval. Reduction in the time of whole genome sequencing to around one day instead of weeks can move to facilitate quicker delivery of custom vaccines. Doctors and researchers are intrigued by the apparent success of Moderna's cancer vaccine. They're hopeful that the mRNA technology is the key to speeding up the process of personalizing cancer vaccines, the side effects of which are much more bearable than that of chemo. We're in a new era now, having seen mRNA vaccines. Is mRNA vaccine technology a new frontier for us? That is still open to question. So how can you get a cancer vaccine? The future of cancer vaccines is bright, experts say, but perhaps not equally bright for everyone. All experts expressed worries that new medical technologies like cancer vaccines could disproportionately benefit the privileged and remain out of reach for members of marginalized populations. It's a trend seen in clinical trials in general and one that isn't new to healthcare. The poor or underserved communities are less likely to be included. Biases, unconscious and otherwise exist, often against non-white patients, women, and older individuals. Due to this, doctors may not recommend clinical trials or other treatments, and patients need to advocate for themselves. Case in point, black men are about twice as likely to die of prostate cancer than white men. Some of that is because we don't understand enough about the genetics of risk, but some of it is a lack of access to care and clinical trials, often the most advanced form of care. If patients are interested in vaccines that may exist for their cancer approved or in clinical trial, they shouldn't wait for their oncologist to bring up the possibility. Ask, am I eligible? What would the benefits and concerns be? What are my treatment options? And get a second opinion when you can. And how close are we to widespread availability of cancer vaccines? 
the bulk of current cancer vaccines are for those with advanced disease. It's the natural progression of medicine to start with those most in need. We make progress and then we take that progress and march up earlier and earlier in disease stages. Doctors predict a growing number of therapeutic cancer vaccines will be developed over the next decade. There are many ongoing phase two and phase three clinical trials for such, meaning more help could be on the way relatively soon with an emphasis on should. Sometimes the issue isn't a lack of new successful treatments, but a lack of funding to carry them through to the finish line. Part of the problem is, and continues to be, in all realms, whether cancer, vaccine, or some other kind of treatment, that somebody needs to pick up the cost of the higher level clinical studies. There's no question a lot of opportunities have been missed through the years. In a worst case scenario, researchers develop a successful cancer vaccine but can't secure the resources for a phase three trial necessary for FDA approval. In such circumstances, they find it encouraging that future researchers will be able to build upon the progress their teams make by reading the published findings. Although it may be disheartening that they can't see particular vaccines move forward, they know they have contributed to a scientific basis that guides the future. Next article is somewhat related. A man in the U.S. got prostate cancer and it made him start speaking with an Irish accent. And Catherine Schuster Bruce wrote this article. A man in the U.S. developed an uncontrollable Irish accent in the first known case of prostate cancer causing what is known as foreign accent syndrome. The unnamed man in his 50s went to the doctor after he noticed the tone and pattern of his speech changed 20 months after he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. The man spoke consistently with an Irish brogue accent, but never had an Irish accent before or visited the country, though he had Irish relatives and friends. The man also lost weight, but didn't initially have symptoms from the cancer. He was diagnosed with the most common type of prostate cancer following a screening and had been treated with two types of hormone therapy and radiotherapy to his prostate and pelvis. The author said the man had foreign accent syndrome, which is a rare phenomena where a person's speech and articulation consistently changes so they sound like they have a foreign accent. It can also occur after a stroke, but in this case it was caused by paraneoplastic syndrome from the prostate cancer. This particular syndrome refers to a group of symptoms caused by cancer cells that release hormones and other substances. According to reports, no one with prostate cancer has had FAS before, but there are cases of reports of one person with breast cancer and another with brain cancer. Three months after the man noticed the accent, he experienced discomfort in his lower abdomen, pain when he peed, and leg pain that came and went. Scans found the prostate cancer had spread to his liver and bones, and he had a new mass in his pelvis. Biopsies revealed that the cancer had developed into a rarer, more aggressive subtype of prostate cancer following his hormone treatment. Doctors said it's important to recognize FAS and underlying perineoplastic syndromes because they can be a sign that cancer has developed into a more aggressive type. Doctors treated the man with two chemotherapy drugs and radiotherapy to his right leg to help manage the pain, but after two cycles, he went to the hospital because he couldn't move his feet and then his arms. The cancer had spread to his brain. Despite having chemotherapy, his condition rapidly deteriorated and he went into hospice where he died. Case reports tend to shed light on unexpected symptoms, rare side effects, or innovative approaches to treatment, but usually more research is needed to support the findings. That is a very sad case indeed. 
Next article, Dax Kahara, surprising cause of death revealed for 37-year-old ABC News producer. And Ron Dicker wrote this article. ABC News producer Dax Tahara died in December from choking on food while intoxicated, not from a heart attack as originally reported. Tahara, 37, was stricken on December 23rd from asphyxia due to obstruction of an airway by food bolus complicating acute alcohol intoxication, according to the New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiners. ABC News President Kim Goodwin informed staff in the immediate aftermath that Tahara, an executive producer on This Week, had died of a heart attack. ABC declined to comment on the latest development. Tahara joined This Week in 2020 and sparked a ratings jump among Sunday public affairs programs for the show, headlined by George Stephanopoulos. He had big plans and big dreams that were just beginning to be fulfilled. The producer left behind a legal dilemma for his wife, Veronica, and their two-year-old daughter and infant daughter. On the night of his death, Veronica was arrested for acting in a manner injurious to a child because the Harris left the children unattended in their Manhattan hotel room while dining out. A staffer at Bobby Van's restaurant said Tahara appeared unwell at the table and a waiter followed the producer as he walked out the front door. Veronica Tahara told Entertainment Tonight she made a poor decision and unsuccessfully tried to arrange supervision as the emergency unfolded. She said she had been monitoring the children via camera. Wow. I think this just really highlights the reason why it's so very important to watch people very closely if they are intoxicated, because things like that are just very, very tragic ways to pass away. And one final article for the day. Eye infection from tainted eye drops may be more widespread, doctors worry. Erica Edwards and Berkeley Lovelace Jr., as well as Ann Thompson, wrote this article. It was late last summer when Dr. Guillermo Amescua started noticing something weird about the eye infections he was seeing in his clinic. Amescua, a cornea specialist at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, has been well-versed in using antibiotics to treat bacterial eye infections. The warm Miami weather often coaxes people into relaxing at the pool or beach before removing their contact lenses, which gives bacteria a perfect breeding ground. Once infected, patients say their eyes are painful, they can't see clearly, they're sensitive to light, and it's often an issue. We usually take care of it, but there's no problem. But his arsenal of antibiotics have stopped working. Over the past six months, Amescua said he encountered at least seven cases of bacteria that was resistant to antibiotics, resulting in devastating outcomes. The new strain has never been seen before in the U.S., according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Patients have needed corneal transplant, and some were blinded. I was getting complication after complication, Amescua said. I don't remember, even in my 10-plus years, losing the battle against infections so many times in such a short period of time. Among cases nationwide, the CDC says the common thread appears to be a particular brand of eye drops, the Ezracare Artificial Tears. The agency urged people to stop using the drops immediately. Most were purchased online, but at least one person reported buying the drops at Costco. As of Wednesday, the artificial tears manufactured in India by Global Pharma Healthcare have been linked to at least 55 cases of antibiotic-resistant infections. 
Cases so far have been reported in 12 states, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Nevada, Texas, Utah, Washington, and Wisconsin. The company has since recalled its products, also sold under the brand name Delsum Pharma. One person has died and five people have been blinded, at least in one eye, according to the CDC. The agency first reported potential problems with the eye drops in January, but did not issue a public health alert in the matter until February. This is a very complex investigation that required a number of techniques that are time-consuming and challenging to coordinate and implement, according to the CDC. Due to the widespread nature of this outbreak, the investigation required coordination and data collection from a large number of state and local health jurisdictions. One suspected case involves an 81-year-old woman from Ellesmere, Kentucky. Doctors say she used EzraCare artificial tears to ease her dry eyes before she was hospitalized with an eye infection in June of 2022. Her daughter said her mother's infection was so bad that it would be a miracle if they could save the eye. Fortunately, they did, but eight months later, the woman continued to suffer from vision loss and she can no longer drive. The case has been reported to health officials. While the CDC has yet to definitively trace the infections to the eye drops, the agency is investigating cases with the Food and Drug Administration, state officials, and local health officials. The CDC is now testing unopened bottles of the artificial tears to determine whether contamination may have occurred during manufacturing. The FDA first learned of this outbreak in December 2022, according to a spokesperson for NBC News. At that time, many potential products were being investigated by the CDC. The FDA learned in January that this outbreak was associated with EzraCare artificial tears, over-the-counter eye drops that did not require FDA approval. Darlene Miller, who heads the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute lab, urged people who have been infected by the drops to contact a physician immediately. The bacteria can destroy the eye within 48 hours. According to the CDC, symptoms of an eye infection include yellow, green, or clear discharge from the eye, eye pain or discomfort, redness of the eye or eyelid, feeling of something in your eye, which is a foreign body sensation, increased sensitivity to light, and blurry vision. Meanwhile, doctors worry that people are still using the contaminated eye drops. It's alarming because it has a resistance to pretty much everything we have. So if you have those EzraCare eye drops, stop using them immediately and see your doctor. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email or at hypoelmapodcast at gmail.com. We will put that into the show notes along with all of the articles that we have used for the show today. Please join us again next time when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild medical cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real and always live your very best life. Bye.